Since the time of the first white settlers, cattle have been one of the most prized commodities in the American West. They've inspired epic tales of cattle runs from Texas to Montana, shootouts, songs. They've long been linked to prosperity and power. Beyond the American West mythology, though, cattle, of course, are a commodity. These days, an average 12 to 1,600 pound beef animal sells for a few thousand dollars. All to say the beef industry is massive in this country. And apparently even now, still a target for a cattle swindle. What's a cattle swindle, you ask? Oh, dear friends, we have a tale to tell. I'm Rachel Martin. This is Up for Sunday. Late last year, a Washington state rancher began serving an 11-year sentence for one of the largest cattle-related fraud schemes in U.S. history, a swindle so big it actually affected the price of beef for American consumers. Journalist Anna King lays out the story in a new podcast. It is called Ghost Herd from NPR member stations KUOW in Seattle and Northwest Public Broadcasting in Pullman, Washington. Anna joins me now to talk about it. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Rachel. This is a crazy story. I'm so glad that we get to unpack this with you. Ghost Herd, also a great title for a story about a cattle swindle. It also happens to be an accurate description of what happened because the guy at the center of this basically made up a herd of cattle that didn't exist, right? Yeah, you know, the title is an allusion to the swindle, and the podcast tells the story of Cody Easterday, He's a rancher at the center of this big scandal. He basically invented 265,000 cattle on paper. And it's a ghost herd, if you will. All right. So there are many, many questions that I have about how someone can just make up a cattle herd out of thin air. But as a way to get into this, explain more about this person, Cody Easterday. What's his background? Yeah, so Cody is the son of a fabled ranching and farming family in the Columbia Basin is what we call it. And the Columbia Basin is this huge fertile agricultural area in eastern Washington right along the Columbia River. And the family until recently controlled a massive enterprise. If you're a meat eater in the U.S. or even as far as Japan, chances are you've chewed into a piece of Easterday beef. Hmm. And the Easterdays own ranches, feedlots, vegetable farms, processing centers, even like airplanes that ported them from place to place and state to state. Wow. So when we chronicled them in our podcast, it's really the downfall of this family that we're telling the story of and how it all came to be that they had this modern-day fiasco. Hmm. It all started, you know, back in the 1950s when Cody Easterday's grandfather bought a 300-acre plot of sagebrush desert out here, and then they made it into a farm through digging up all the sagebrush, removing the rocks, and it was tough, tough work. It was just a really tough time for those early farmers. And I talked to one of them. His name is Chep Gant, and his origin story is really similar to that of the Easterday family. And this is how he describes the land back in the late 1950s in the Columbia Basin. This was a very, very difficult area to start in. It's, it's hard to describe how tough conditions were as you take fields out of sagebrush. And a spring break was like a different name for rock picking. They were the same name. 
spring break just meant that you got to pick rocks all week. It didn't, you didn't get to pick them just after school. You got to pick all week. Spring break was when the crops were starting to come up, a lot of blooming, a lot of growing of, the, of everything. And, and so you got out of school and you went home and you did whatever work the farm needed. So all this to say that the Columbia Basin is a pretty big deal. And what the Easter Days managed to make out of that original 300 acres was huge. Why? What was key to their success? Well, Cody took what his parents and his grandparents had already built. And then he plowed more money and he took a lot of risks to grow the farm. And by everyone's account, he was just unstoppable. When he was a young man, he just had all these big dreams and this huge ambition. One of my favorite stories that came out of my research is that his wife, when they were on an early date, he promised her he was going to take her out to town, but instead he drove her out into the middle of a field in the dark and looked at irrigation pivot lines <laughs> blinking with lights in the distance. And he said, this is part of the farm that I just bought, and this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of guy he was. He just wanted to build a massive farm. Mm-hmm. He was ambitious. Yeah. I spoke to this guy, Ben Casper, who sells tires in Basin City, Washington, and does business with the Easter Days. And this is how he described Cody. I think there was no fear in him, and he just went for the gusto, and he understood everything. He knew just what had to happen, and he did it. So in just 20 years, under Cody, this business just multiplied. It just grew from $1 million in revenue to $250 million. So he he was good at making money, it sounds like. Was he well-respected? Was he well-liked in the circles he ran in? Did people consider him a good guy? Yeah, you know, Cody Easterday had this ironclad reputation. He would shake on something, and he would mean his word, and he'd follow through. And in the Columbia Basin, reputation is everything. I started working as a young ag reporter over here in eastern Washington, and I quickly learned how this worked out here. Can I play you just a little bit of this podcast, Rachel, a little bit of my own initiation story? Sure. Because it explains a lot about the culture of this area. Yeah, let's listen. When I first started reporting here in the Columbia Basin, I was in my 20s. My mom gave me kisses. Dad threw a last-minute Costco pack of toilet paper into the back of my rig, slammed the trunk, <laughs> gave me a huge hug, and I drove east over White Pass. I was reporting for the Tri-City Herald at the time. I was hired on as their ag and outdoors writer. I lived in a little apartment near the Columbia River. No one knew me out here. My family name meant squat. No one cared about my family's farm four hours away in western Washington. And few farmers or ranchers here wanted to talk with the press, let alone talk to me. I would struggle through days of calls to land even one productive interview. I attended hay conferences, irrigation district board meetings, anything just to meet more farmers and get some business cards. But slowly, with each good story, I began to gain a reputation. Sometimes that was good. Sometimes that was bad. Like the time I wrote that asparagus had 12 feet deep roots. 
An angry reader and asparagus farmer took me out in his pickup and dug up an asparagus crown to show me the shorter roots himself. Those were some hard lessons, but that pissed off farmer is still one of my most trusted sources today. Now, after more than a decade of work, I have a network of growers from near Spokane clear down to the Oregon border with Nevada. All this to say, I've built my reputation. Reputation out here is everything. It's what business, social circles, and life are centered on. Hmm. Yeah, I get that. So when I say, like, Cody had an ironclad reputation, it just means a lot. And the Easter Days provided so many jobs and contributed to so many organizations out here that their name was just known like you would know McDonald's or or some other large corporation. Mm -hmm. They would actually, like, bid up 4-H animals at the fair to pay children for their project animals. They would, like, bid on sheep or cattle that weren't getting a good price Uh, and so that other people would start bidding. And they would just buy them out of generosity. But what later came out is that that might not have been their money that they were playing with. Did you get a chance to actually interview members of the family? Yeah, I really, really tried. Uh, I did <laughs> I did get a hold of an uncle, but as soon as he understood who I was, he hung up on me. I tried to reach the lawyers. I sent certified letters to the businesses of Cody Easterday's family. I even dropped a letter on the porch of Cody Easterday's house um, just to make sure that they really understood that I wanted to talk with them and tell their side of the story. But ultimately, what I did is I spoke with a lot of people that knew them, and it was really tough to get everyone to talk. Wow. Because the Easter days are so powerful here. And when I talked to people, you know, this is kind of what they said back to me. I wanted to ask you about the Easter days. Oh, I'm not answering that. (laughs) I'm not answering nothing. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to talk about Cody. I'm not going to talk about that. I've known Cody for quite some time, and just leave it at that. Wow. Cody used his ironclad reputation to expand all his family's holdings, and he did that by partnering with Tyson Foods to raise beef for them. Okay, so what does that mean, a beef-raising partnership? How does it actually work? So the way it works is that Cody Easterday would say, I want to raise cattle for you, Tyson. And Tyson would say, okay, we're going to give you some money to buy a batch of calves, let's say 700 animals, and bring those to your place and raise and fatten them. And we'll pay you for the feed and the upkeep and the care until they're market ready. Uh At the end, when the cattle are mature, the cattle are weighed. And the money is worked out between Tyson and Cody. So Tyson takes back its initial investment, but then cuts Cody a check for the difference. So in theory, when it works, both parties make out pretty well. This is what I don't really get. From everything that you've just described, the Easter Day family was doing pretty well with Cody at the helm, right? So why did he need to invent a fake herd of cows. 
Yeah. So Cody, of all things, had this gambling habit, and he basically was gambling money on the cattle futures market at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And it was really dramatic. I mean, in 2014, he lost $20 million. Whoa. In 2018, (laughs) he lost $59 million. And then again, in 2020, he lost another $34 million. In total, he lost more than $200 million. So just the scale of those losses is hard to wrap your head around. Um, (laughs) He then had all this, what, gambling debt that he had to pay off? I mean, you don't just lose that kind of money and walk away and say, sorry, I can't pay it. Yeah, so he started to be in trouble. He would have had to start selling parts of his farm or uh, moving money around at the farm. But eventually what he came to is this cattle scheme, basically forward billing or you know borrowing or air quotes, stealing money from Tyson and another company to support his gambling addiction. So how did he do this? He had to basically invent fake cows in order for Tyson to give him advance money to to what? Raise these fake cows. Yeah. And Tyson didn't discover this for years. It's a combination of possibly some accounting oversight And the fact that everybody just trusted the Easter Day name. It was so ironclad, Rachel. It's hard to explain how trusted they were in the community and in the beef industry and the farming community at large. Hmm. Up First Sunday continues after this break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Martin, and this is Up First Sunday, and I'm talking with journalist Anna King about her new podcast, Ghost Herd. Didn't Tyson figure it out when the cows weren't showing up at the slaughterhouse when they were expected to be there? So that's the interesting thing. Cody always delivered his cattle that he was supposed to deliver to the plant. So he always had batches of real cattle that he was raising for Tyson and delivering to the plant. So there was always this baseline of real cattle, but then he just would top over a huge amount of cattle that didn't exist. Hmm. So he was just clever with how he was accounting for all of this, and he exploited clearly some inefficient accountability systems at Tyson. It's really amazing to think about this, but he he thought he was just going to get away with it? I think he might have thought he was always going to pay it back. I think he always thought he was going to get a windfall and he was going to make it right, possibly, in the back of his mind. That's what he said in some of the court documents. But eventually, I think what just caught him is COVID. CBS News has confirmed COVID cases in at least 17 meat processing plants in 10 states. And so one of the plants that was hit with this COVID problem was the massive plant at Wallula, Washington. It's a Tyson plant, and it's just immense. This is how I described it in the podcast. Industrial stacks rise up from the building, puffing out white clouds. Huge pens with horseback cowboys riding herd are out back. And twin flagpoles, one with a blue Tyson flag and another with an American flag, flap right out front. 
About 1,400 people work here, speaking nearly a dozen languages. Wow, so 1,400 people work at the plant. A COVID outbreak is going to make a lot of people sick there, huh? Yeah, I mean, almost 300 people at this Tyson plant tested positive, and the plant just ground to a halt. And the one thing that they knew is they had to understand their inventories of cattle in the whole nation. So they start looking more closely at at everything, but all of a sudden they see some problems in the accounting coming from Cody Easterday. Exactly. What did they do about it? So they sent a guy on a plane from headquarters in the Midwest back to Washington State to get on the ground and inspect Cody's operation. And when he got there, he started looking around in these pens and he understood that there just wasn't the amount of cattle that they were expecting out there. And they even flew drones to see how many cattle they were talking about, but the cattle just weren't there. So they confronted Cody, I I imagine. And what did he say? He confessed right away. And just several days later, they started having conference calls with many Big shots at Tyson. But what was his excuse? (laughs) His excuse was basically he was doing some forward billing or that he had done some accounting work and that he had kept uh, really good records of all this accounting and that he intended to pay it back. Hmm. But it's such a huge sum. I think it would be hard for most people to pay that back. So, So what happened? The farm and the entire Easterday empire basically collapsed. In the collapse, a valuable piece of property, a huge, massive farm that's like 12,000 acres was sold off. So basically, this conference call was set up. It was a video conference, and lawyers in suits and different locations around the U.S., were bidding back and forth to bid up this land. And um, Rachel, I've been to this land and it is amazing. It's just like you stand at the edge of it and you can't see the end of it. It's so large that it boggles your mind. Hawks glide off of power poles and it sits on the bend in the Columbia River. It's Mm. just amazing property. But the real money there is tied up in the water water is so valuable in the West. And that's why many of these large, large companies went to bid on this land. Hmm. Cody also paid the price for all of his shenanigans with the commodities market. You know, he's a country boy that loves the wide open, but he's going to spend 11 years in a federal penitentiary. Wow. So, Anna, I mean, you have spent a long time thinking about this story and the people in it, the communities it affected, the personalities, Cody Easterday himself and his and his role in this massive, massive American industry. Do you think when you look at this cattle swindle, does it teach us anything larger about the industry itself? I think that this really teaches us about the value of our land the value of dirt, as we call it in the series. This land was stolen from Native peoples that owned and knew this landscape before. And we also have to ask ourselves as a nation, who do we want to control our farmland? 
Who do we want to control our food? Because the farmers that we think we know in our heads, those 100-acre farms that are on the box of eggs or the milk carton at the store, that's not really farming anymore. Farming is getting huge, and it's even getting bigger. And your grandfather's farm just won't exist anymore. It's going to be huge swaths of corporately or foreign-owned land. This cattle swindle opens a window into land deals that are usually obscured because the bankruptcy is like a public record. It's open and we can see everything about it, where usually these land deals are done in private lawyers' boardrooms. We can't see what the price was. We can't see who bids on the land until it's already sold. Hmm. This opened everything up to the public, oh. and we were able to see the scale of the land deals that are happening in the West and that they have gotten much, much larger than most of us understood. Anna King, talking about her new podcast, it's called Ghost Herd. It is about a recent massive cattle swindle that upended the American beef industry. All episodes are available to listen to now. Anna, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you about this. Thank you so much for sharing your reporting. Thank you so much for having me. This episode was produced by Audrey Wynn with help from KUOW's Matt Martin. It was edited by Jenny Schmidt. Ghost Herd is a joint production of KUOW, Puget Sound Public Radio, and Northwest Public Broadcasting, both members of the NPR Network. Matt Martin was the producer, and Jim Gates was the editor. Up for Sunday is also produced by Justine Yan. Our supervising producer is Leanna Simstrom, and Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. I'm Rachel Martin. Up first, we'll be back tomorrow with all the news you need to start your week. Until then, have a great rest of your weekend.